If you want to make your own podcast but feel intimidated by the tech barriers, then you might need Alitu. Alitu is a web app that lets you create and publish great sounding podcast episodes. It takes care of the complicated stuff, leaving you free to concentrate on what you do best, talking about your passion. Alitu, the podcast maker app, find it at alitu.com. That's A-L-I-T-U dot com. everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon. I am stoked to bring you another edition of our On the Road series. Today we're, we're with Steve Sue, who is the quote-unquote chief lemonhead at Lemonade Alley, a youth entrepreneur program, and chairman of BizGenics Foundation, a Hawaii-based 501c3 nonprofit. While most of his time is dedicated to BizGenics, He's also active in several technology-based ventures, largely through SAAS Ventures or SAS Ventures. His career includes 25 years as a story expert, conceptualist, and startup guy in entertainment, hospitality, food service, retail, product, and software development. Steve holds a BA in design from UCLA and a JD from UC, uh, sorry, UC Berkeley. So, Steve, welcome to the program. Hey, Josh, how's it? I'm doing well. You doing good? Yeah, we're in uh, the back roads of Kaimuki today. Yes, we are. Yeah, so if you hear any, like, minor birds screeching or cars <laughs> going by, buses. it's just... Buses. It's a lot of buses. Buses. It's far for the course. <laughs> um, so, Steve, what's your, what's your growing up story? Uh, I was born and raised in Oakland, California. Um, you know, I never really liked Oakland, California. It was a really tough place to be. I was the shortest kid in my class forever. Um, my high school was 40% African-American, 40% Caucasian, 20% split between other minorities. And um, in that era, the kids in the Asian groups were like all gang members. They were super tough. Yeah. So I was a kid that kind of, you know, had a little toughness in the upbringing because I was not uh, the exemplary physical specimen. But I, I survived it. And uh actually got out of there pretty fast, although I love the area. I still go back, and we have a lot of family there. Um, and it's obviously a hotbed of technology and, and growth. So uh, every place has its positive things about it. But to be very frank, uh, for me, Hawaii is it. I, mm. I just love it here. I've been here full-time now for 12 years and dating my wife for six years before that. And she is the reason why I'm here. Mm. She, she said, if it's going to be me, it's going to be here. Right. So I'm here. That's awesome. And I love it. So what's your formal schooling story? What's what's your story about elementary school, middle school, high school? Uh, I was kind of not really a standout student, um, kind of ADD kid. And um, I don't know. I mean, there's so many kids that battle this, right? You know, like, how do you really connect? And are you a worthy person? And so I had all the same afflictions that most kids have. Um, the way I dealt with it was to just be creative. If I could draw a picture, if I could think up a silly story, uh, tell a joke, that was always my, my, my go-tos. Um, fortunately, there was this dude named Bruce Lee that was kind of popular back when I was in 
grade school times. And uh, boy, he saved me from a lot of fights. I mean, imagine like a little Chinese kid going, and it, honestly, it works. I mean, it may even work to, to, to this day. But uh, the, the, the funny sounds I would make in gym classes to keep the bigger kids off my back, it always worked. And wow. thank, God, thank goodness for Mr. Lee. <laughs> when did you become aware that you, not a formal diagnosis of ADD, but just sort of that you kind of thought differently or that you were not the ah. same maybe as the traditional yeah. kids that we that we label traditional um yeah so i was like a kid for a really long time i may be still i'm partially kid mm -hmm. uh but probably into my 30s was about the time i figured it out and it was a moment when my mom said steven will you please just choose one thing to do with your career mm -hmm. because i'm tired of telling my friends what the heck you do I me mean, because my brothers and sisters were very like straight road they took career you know they knew what they were they were a software programmer or or a retail consultant or uh, a map maker and in my case i was like every six months or so i'd be doing something different and honestly i still do something different I mean, in our nonprofit, i'm kind of known for like you know steve has a lot of good ideas but we need people to finish these ideas and so i have to think to put a lid on it so i battle this whole um hyper ideism every day um, and maybe even worse than that after i had graduated from uh, uh, post uh, from graduate school from uc berkeley um, several years after i would i was diagnosed with a reading disorder and can you imagine a kid going through law school with a reading disorder wow. i mean it was really really tough i thought i was really dumb i mean i was literally like the bottom of my class and i got out of the place by the skin of my teeth but um you know, speaking of teeth, I literally ground my teeth down to the nubs. Like my teeth would be, my molars would, were loose in that era. Mm -hmm. uh, the stress was just tremendous. And not knowing that you have an affliction and it's not necessarily a fault, you know, driven circumstance, um, it can destroy a human being. And, and we see that in generations of kids. By the same token, if you think that kids are too sensitive and you don't allow them to fail, um, then you're doing them an injustice. So there's a happy balance in there somewhere. I actually think that currently we've gone too much to that other side, which is two kit gloves. Um, I'm not really a tough love person when I'm around kids. I tend to be more uh, encouraging and I'll jump in and play with kids like another kid. Uh, but I, I also don't cut them slack. And, and so and I, all of us are shaped by our backgrounds. And that was mine in terms of educational background. But um, it's, it's a, to me, it's a wonder to this day that I actually made it through school. And, you know, like literally 40 years later, I still have nightmares that I didn't finish school, that I've got to go back and take one more class. And I didn't study for the class at all. I didn't buy the book. And the, the final is like, oh, my gosh, it started an hour ago. I still have that nightmare. Wow. Do you have mentors, guides, coaches that you recall from elementary, middle, high school that you picked up they or, or you understood that they understood you and that they were willing to work with you the way that you were yeah absolutely like there's nothing better than a great teacher and i think most kids eventually find a great teacher one way or another um the truly special ones are the ones that give so much to so many kids and i had teachers mostly the ones that were appreciative of the kids with art skills um and it was just really a godsend that they were around for me and they encouraged me 
Um, even in university time, I had one teacher that I took a color theory class from. I was an economics major. Actually, I was a poli-sci major, then an economics major. Not my thing. I was doing it for my family, my dad in particular. And um, this one guy, I, just, I took this elective class as a, a design class, and I was really good at it. And, he, and this guy says, I will go to bat for you. I will wow. talk to your father. And he never met my father, but he was willing to do that for me. So to me, that's like, that's the sign of a great teacher that really understands what kids are going through and tries to make their lives better, irrespective of like just teaching them content. Right. And, and I think we're seeing more and more of a need for that today. Right. Because now you can Google search anything to get the data, right? To get the, to get the, to the mastery content. But ultimately, life coaches, um, creative skill coaches, that's where I see teachers more in need now. In, in my era, as relevant then as, as now. Right. So you went to law school, but you didn't mm. become a lawyer. So what's the story behind that? Well, because my family, my dad in particular, wanted me a businessman. My dad, by the way, is a great man. I mean, he was very successful in business. He went from nothing to something, um, you know, literally poverty, like welfare. Um, he didn't have a father. Uh, he was five kids that were raised by my grandmother in a hovel in San Francisco and um, this really, really hard life. So not having a father, his uh, coping mechanism was to go be really successful, not never to be hungry again. So because he had become a designer, he's first generation to go to college in our family, um, he, he, he started in design and failed because in California, there was a proposition that came by that basically killed parks and recreation projects, which is what he did. He's a landscape architect. Mm. And so he really had this negative um, belief about, uh, about architecture and design. And so I said, Steve, you need to become a businessman. That's how you really make it. And that just wasn't my DNA. I was actually a chip off the old block. I was meant to be a designer. Mm. And so um, going through all that was like, interesting to watch how I became my dad, but he didn't want me to be that thing. So flashback to college again. I'm in college. I'm playing cards to put my way through college. I used to play poker and I played a lot of poker at this one place that just happened to be a fraternity house. And I didn't know what a frat house was at the time, but the guys were like, well, if you're going to take this much money from us, you better join our club. <laughs> so I joined the club and turned out to be a Jewish frat and, and true to stereotype, every single kid in my graduating class that was in that fraternity took the LSAT and went to law school. Mm -hmm. So I went along with 27 other kids. I took the LSAT. It just happened that I crushed it on that day. I just, I got this just crazy high score on the LSAT. I've been studying for it with the other kids. I scored 10 points higher percentile wise than I'd ever scored in any other practice test. So because of that, and because I had perfect grades, because I ended up changing my major to design, um, if you, if you take design in college, you show up for class, you pretty much get an A because a lot of kids won't even show up for class. So show up for class, turn into project, boom, you get A's. I have very, very good grades, good test scores. I was an anomaly in Berkeley as a school likes anomalies in that day, even in this day. So that's how I ended up in law school, but it really wasn't for me. It wasn't what I was meant to be. And most of the kids that were at uh, Berkeley Law, um, were multi-generational lawyer families. These are kids that their parents, grandparents, you know, they were judges and top ranking attorneys, senior partners at law firms. 
they knew how to be attorneys long before they ever went to law school. And I was like total fish out of water. So while it was nice that I somehow got in on, I think in large part, a diversity play, not so much um, ethnic diversity, but more on resume diversity. Um, it wasn't necessarily the right thing or the right way to evaluate whether I should have been there or not. Mm. So in any event, once I got out, I was like, wow, no, even when I was a first year, I was leaving class a lot. When I was a second year in law school, it's a three year program, second year of law school, I was spending Tuesdays through Thursdays driving from Berkeley, California to UCLA, where I was tutoring a computer graphics class because I was really into computer graphics as an undergrad. That's like and an eight hour drive. It's like a six, five and a half hour drive. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, but it's a long drive, right? And this is time when you're supposed to be reading like legal textbooks and, and case, case studies. I was just not, it was just not me. Right. Um, so in the end, you didn't actually practice law? Never did. I never when, looked back. When you came out of law school, where'd you go from there? Um, where did I go? Well, I started building houses because that's what my dad did. And uh, I had a, a grandmother and an aunt that had a piece of property and they weren't going to build on it. It was a really very steep hillside and really nobody wanted it. So I knew how to design a house because I tagged after my dad and his design works. And so I designed a house. I built it myself. I knew how to do construction. I'd worked on construction sites for contractors as a high school student and um, put up a house and it was a very good market. I made a lot of money and just kept doing houses right. until the next recession. <laughs> and right. then everything went to pot and then I had to figure it out and renew a, a career. Okay. So you, you've worked as a designer creating theme parks and live entertainment productions, corporate theater events, retail environments, restaurants, product brands, and uh, mega resort casinos. So my question around this is about design thinking. Yeah. So for the last maybe three or four years here in Hawaii, but it's also been happening nationally and even yeah. globally, um, design thinking has become a process that a lot of educators are interested in. Um, so we're talking about it right now a lot in education. Um, what is it that we need to do, if we do need to do it, to guide kids in the direction of having a designer's mindset? So I guess it's a two-part yeah. question. What is the designer's mindset? Why is it valuable? And is it is it valuable as as valuable as, say, literacy or numeracy in schools sure okay so you know ted denger smith very well right you get his whole deal right right um what what he observes is it's it's extremely essential that kids move to creativity because computers will disintermediate muscle tissue with robotics and will take a lot of the everyday thinking functions that are repetitive in particular but for creativity that's the thing that's furthest away from computing and i totally agree with him on this point so if you look at what makes us different as an animal, we love to create and we love to create on top of creations. Um, the, the idea of history and I actually, I'm a specialist in story. So I spent many years in entertainment and corporate theater and, you know, writing scripts and directing and things like that. But the, the essence of story is really ideas. And if you have an idea and this goes back to education and student voice, we want kids to have voice because that's how they're having ideas. Right. So to have ideas that are useful is where this idea of design thinking comes into play. The difference between art and design is that art is a statement. It can be a statement for yourself. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be sold. The point at which you're creating something for somebody else and you have a client, that's typically what people think of as design. So if you are 
designing or creating for an employer, this is kind of where you're going. This is why design thinking is important. And um, I don't think there's a replacement because frankly, that's what we live and breathe for as an animal. Um, incidentally, the, I like to tell the kids this, the root word of history is story, high story, right? And the heightening of story, building stories on top of other people's stories. Um, somebody invents a lot electricity and then he invents the light bulb. And centuries later, literally, if I want to be a lighting designer, I don't have to reinvent those things. It's all in, in the, uh, uh, the historical record. So I can just start working with lampshades and plugs and I can basically elevate the whole species. So all of us working collaboratively and uh, building stories upon stories is really a differentiator for us. And it's really fun. Um, it's useful and fun. So ultimately, if you have kids that learn these skills, they're going to be useful in their careers and they'll be very happy, I think. Um, for me, there's nothing more fun than making something new. That's why everybody's like, oh, tie this guy up because he has too many ideas. I just like having ideas and I would love to have every kid have ideas. You know, you have, you have being curious, curious uh, being inquisitive, being willing to take chances. Um, if you're a designer, you fail way more than you succeed, particularly in your first 30 years of practice. If you ever go to an agency and they're doing like identity for, you know, a logo for a company, you'll see literally 3000 thumbnails on a conference room wall and they have to go down every, every dead end to validate that they didn't miss something. But the frank truth is, is after 30 years, you can kind of like hit it. Like here's five ideas based on one. And it's like, wow, yeah, that's epic. And when an idea is really crystalline, it's, if it's based on enough experience, you tend not to go into those dead end corners. Um, at the same time, when I see invention in schools, hackathons, we do a lot of hackathons. So for example, locally, STEM works, we go and do hackathons for, for Isla. And um, the hacks that I see most typically in schools are inventions, not necessarily innovations. The, the difference between those two words is an invention to me is something that is like, it's curiosity. It's like, I, I, I discovered something. The discovery process is key to education, but if you want to take it to the business world, then it has to be um, market ready. It has to have a value that, that people that are going to buy it or use it are going to honor and give you something back for. Mm -hmm. And so if you take the typical invention-a-thon, they will be things like kids are learning how to code. And that's great, but that's not an innovation. Because a true innovation would be, um, you know, what's your big idea? What's your invention? What's, what's, what do you name it? Who's going to use it? What are your goals? Um, so it's a much deeper inquiry. And ultimately, design thinking is, getting back to your question, mm -hmm. is if you dissect it, it's like there's multiple themes to an idea to make it a design. Mm -hmm. And addressing all of those is essential. Um, where some people have a little bit of a misunderstanding is it's not a sequential process. So if you look at design thinking, it's presented sequentially because it's curriculumized. And so do you start with empathy? I would tell you, I'm all, I know almost no designers that would ever start with empathy, hmm. but you have to be empathetic through the whole process. Right. And eventually how you mark the value is that, yeah, you've done something that the customer is going to understand and feel that, yes, I need that and I will buy it. So in some cases, it's almost like when I look at design thinking as a really like I did design for many years, it's almost like 
scientists looking at me under a microscope like I'm a bug and dissecting me. Um, design is much messier than that. And, and if, if we had one message in this whole podcast, I would say like, let kids be messy about design thinking. Mm. Don't do it sequentially. Say, here's a bunch of themes, start where you want, but it's gotta be like a jewel. Mm. There's multifacets and you need to polish them all. They all need to be shiny and crystalline and clear because if you don't, that thing's gonna be unstable and it's gonna crack and turn to dust the first time you stress test it. Um, so that's the mark of a really great idea is that jewel that, that, that prisms all issues, you know, that nobody can poke a hole in it and say, wow, nine out of 10. Because if you do nine out of 10 in business, it's like the diamond that's not polished correctly, it's gonna crack and fail. Your competition will hammer you on the one thing you miss. Hmm. In education, you'll give a student an A for 90%. Right. And that's, again, the difference between education and the business world. So if you try to put the two together, that's where the rub becomes. Because frankly, you want kids to be messy. You want them to fail. You want to honor their failure. You know, you want to teach them how to get up and brush themselves off and fall with, with um, I don't know, with, like with, fall with grace, you know, right. and learn right. from it. Um, if you make it something that this has to monetize every time, it's, it's not necessarily good. So I got into education because I was an entrepreneurial expert. And so education wants that really because of PBL, project-based learning. Uh, but they're really not the same thing. And there's a, there's a transition. I, I like entrepreneurship when you get older kids, like maybe later middle school, certainly high school. Before that, it's a little iffy. I would rather do more like place-based learning or you know in elementary, um, just to keep it more on that, like there's no cost to failure side. Wow, interesting. Steve, I taught history for 17 years and you've got me fired up because I'm thinking now the way that you described history is as, as like a layering effect of design upon design upon design. Yeah. That humans over the course of history have, uh, you know, been motivated to make the world a better place, more or less, sometimes much less, right? But the, it's always been a series of layers of where you build one on top of the other. Yeah. Um, and I'm imagining, because I struggled, I went to a, a design thinking boot camp uh -huh. while I was teaching history. And I came back and I was like, I want to insert it in, but it's it's not linear. It doesn't go from A to Z. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out, like, how do I work with them and thinking about history as historians think about history? How do you construct it in that way? Interesting. And a lot of that has to do with digging into the primary sources, mm -hmm. which is an incredibly messy process. Mm -hmm. Like They're not just lined up for you. Here, you, you read this and you look at this. It's just all over the place. You've got a giant archive of stuff yeah. and you got to sort your way through it like a design would be putting together a story that's right. so that's that's super alphabet soup right yeah every designer like if you load up their hard drive with a, like a whole bunch of random stuff and they come out with something crystalline there's nothing more beautiful than that right I was thinking also about uh, so I, I work for Apple that's my day right. job one of the innovations that came with a recent operating system a couple back was something called stacks. Mm -hmm. So if you had a if you had a, a desktop on your laptop or or your desktop, if your desktop was loaded up with documents and you could barely see the screensaver behind it, yeah. um, that Apple decided that it would be useful to you to be able to just click a button and all of that would be reorganized. So PDFs on top of PDFs. 
uh, uh, screenshots on top of screenshots, images uh -huh. on it, right? So there was this funny moment one day when I was selling a guy a Mac and he was still looking at his old Mac and he had all this mess on his desktop. And I said, you know about stacks? And he's like, well, show it to me. And I clicked it. Well, you can't reverse it. Oh. So everything in his, in his house, quote unquote, got reorganized. Oh, no. And he was just in shock. Like, oh my God, I'll never get that back again. You messed you know? up his filing I system. I totally messed up his filing system. You know? That's how, how history gets very messy that way. That's funny. So um, you, you note that, uh, or you note the conventional wisdom that asking the right question is 90% is of problem solving. And you describe your brother, Alan, as uh, the king of the question. Oh, yeah. So how did Alan, I'm super interested in this in yeah. terms of where questions come from and how that can be coached or trained or taught. How did Alan develop the skill of asking great questions? How do you think that that became him? Well, he didn't inherently ask great questions. It's something that he's done in, in his later life. And the reason is that he became a business coach. So business coaches are people that like life coaches, they deal with like, I don't know, people that are trying to figure out stuff for themselves. They're usually not like big businesses. They're little tiny, you know, entrepreneurial type people. And um, I think in a lot of ways he, he does that because he's trying to goad them to, to frame the question themselves. So he might have a solution in his head, but um, it's like being a teacher. You don't give a kid the solution, right? You we do. challenge them. A lot of the time we do. You do? In I fact, never do it. Well, the, ma <laughs> the majority of traditional yeah. education is giving the kids information and then they have oh, to... Oh, I, I, yeah, sure. Right. I'm, I'm talking I mean. about project-based learning now. What right. I do now is basically, here's a challenge, kids. Solve it, right? right? Allow them to be creative. And so when I have kids that are being creative, if they ask me a question, I oftentimes ask another question back to them. Right. Because I want them to think it through. I could give them a the, the answer. Um, in the case of my brother, he's dealing with adults. So he doesn't want to answer it for them or just tell them because to an adult, that's an affront. That's like, well, you're telling me how to live my life. I've lived my life. I've been through every nook and cranny. There's no other way to do it than how I've done it. So if you have people that are reticent to change, you know, in their minds, their neurons all grow in a certain direction and they can't get off those, those highways, then rather than tell you, no, there's another road there that you should take, which is really pretty, it could be um, uh, very insulting to an adult, you know, whether it is or not, it's how, it's how they take it, right? So if you say, well, maybe there's something that you're, you could do with this. And is there anything else you can think? Is there maybe an alleyway over there? And if they discover it, then they become empowered. Um, so this idea of asking the question becomes that tool of how do you empower people? And as he used it, uh, I, I just saw the effects of it. It would just be amazing to see people start to light up and be more open to change. Um, so I adopted that principle. I was fast to learn. I liked what my brother was doing, so now I use it. And, and I honestly, I think there's, there's no better way to teach than just to ask questions. Right. So you listed Alan as one of your mentors and you also yeah. have a, a part of your webpage that lists other mentors. So who are, who are your mentors in business and technology and art and design? Who are some of those oh people? Oh my gosh, that, there's so many of them. I mean, who are, I think who are, on, my, uh, on my website, I, I write that we are the sum of other people, right? Mm -hmm. um, so to me, mentorship is extremely key. I have mentors to this day. I have, I don't know, four or five solid mentors that, and they know it. They know I'm going to them to look for advice and perspective. 
Um, one of my greatest mentors was this guy named Bill Bardsley, and he's deceased now, super sad. He died at in the mid 50s. Um, he built half of Las Vegas. He designed half of Las Vegas. He worked for Steve Wynn in the early days, and so he did um, Mirage, actually Gold Nugget, Mirage, uh, Treasure Island, part of Bellagio, then he left. But this guy was just super talented as a designer, amazing illustrator. He's the guy that taught me how to draw, and I'm known as an illustrator. That's what got me through my whole career of designs. I could draw a pretty mean picture. Um, but what impressed me more than anything about this guy was his ability to see things that people didn't see. And he was so honest about it that he was not all that. He was just very, he was like a kid in an old person's body. Um, just 110% fun, but also a troubled spirit. I mean, he was like an introvert that felt like he had to be an extrovert because he was a star designer and everybody wanted a piece of this guy. Wow. Um, yeah, but he just taught me so much about, about life and, and, and having your hat in your hand, and you know, not being a jerk about if you thought up something cool, what share I, it out. What I what I hope is that we we can redesign education to the extent that mm. we don't have to have kids waiting until they graduate from high school and go yeah. to college to start thinking about who their mentors are. That mm. they can actually look back even to elementary school and understand that it's not labeling people necessarily as teachers, but as guides, coaches, mentors, sponsors. Um, that we wait too long for that process to happen, and yeah. Well, and I think too often mentors are supposed to be people of high stature, now, like you're going to emulate them, or right. that's going to be a pathway to you getting an internship or something like that. Right. But I, I think that the best mentors are the ones that are giving you a perspective on something that is not that obvious, like a mentor on how to not be a jerk, how to be a giving person, how to um, have grace under fire. Mm. Yeah, you, know, you can learn from everybody around you. Mm -hmm. um, I just, I, I don't know. I, I think that whole mentorship thing is way oversold. And I see it in the entrepreneurial arena where you look at, at where schools want to go with mentorship. Every hack that we've done, and they bring in mentors, they bring in people that have these nice SVP, CEO, you know, great titles. But if you ask me, if you're bringing in somebody from a huge bank mm. that's a loan officer, what do they know about building an app? I would, if I were the kid, I'd much rather have a mentor that was maybe my age or even younger than me that had been through the hack before mm -hmm. or had actually built an app already. You know, it's like there's, right. there's mentors all around us, so they don't have to be of a, of a certain elk or stature. Mm. I've had a series of mentors over the last few years um, who have given me a series of words that I write at the top of every mind map. I do a lot of mind mapping mm -hmm. to okay. navigate my way forward. And, and those words are, are breathe, grace, <laughs> under, grace under pressure, uh, be strategic, um, uh, diplomacy, yeah. and kindness and compassion. And so yeah. they, they've all come from different sources. And, but they all end up as sort of a mantra at the top of every mind map. It's, it's very it's cool. Terrific. It helps well, move me forward. you discovering who you are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey everybody, we're going to take a short break and when we come back we'll be with Steve Sue, and we'll be talking more about his passion for lemons and lemon trees and a lot of the projects that are connected to that. We'll be right back. 
Hi, I'm Tyler Kern from Market Scale. We're excited at the arrival of a new podcast series out of Hawaii titled What School Could Be in Hawaii. Market Scale is thrilled to be partnering with Josh Rapoon on this project and can't wait to hear the insight and thought leadership he brings to EdTech. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can hear it and others over at marketscale.com. You click on industries at the top of the page and then scroll down to EdTech. Hope to see you there. Hey, everybody, we're back with Steve Sue of the BizGenix Foundation. So, Steve, um, you seem pretty passionate about lemons and lemon trees. You think? You think, right? Yeah, it's it's all over your website <laughs> and everything that you do. Yeah. Where does that come from? What is it about? So, I started this program back in 2011 called Lemonade Alley. And we started at Iolani School. And the whole point of the the program was to teach kids entrepreneurship. That was in an era when nobody talked about entrepreneurship. It was sort of a brand new thing. Nobody even talked about PBL at that time. It was just, yeah, seems like a good thing to teach kids. Don't know exactly know why, but let's try it. Right. Um, and it was a year that APEC came here. Do you mm. remember APEC? I do. I was teaching at Iolani at the time. You were? I was, what, what yeah. Were teaching? Um, we, I had been hired as a history teacher, uh-huh. but I'd started to do ed tech. Yeah. And that was right at the moment that we moved into the Sullivan Center oh, um, nice. and APEC arrived at the yeah. same time. So, yeah, I was very aware that out the window, Lemonade Alley was going to be happening down on the football field. Yeah. Where, right. So pretty insane. We planned that event in about a month. Hmm. It's literally from inception idea to the actual event was a month and a half. Right. Um, so luckily, Yolani's bid on it. They said, let's try it. And, and so we did it and it just came off really well. But lemons. What is it? What is the So, so it's a lemonade stand yeah. contest. And you mm. think, well, that's pretty obvious, right? But lemonade is um, it's culinary arts. So you know, of course, um, it, with academy style teaching, yeah. uh, uh, one of the very first academies almost every school deals in is culinary because it's very accessible to the kids. and. You know, it's obviously hands-on. Everybody eats the product. So it's um, it's key to that. Uh, but basically, it's a lemonade stand contest where kids come in teams. They build a lemonade stand out of recycled materials. So we're teaching uh, environmental sustainability. They actually weigh all the pieces, and then they do a carbon credit um, type of you know calculation. They do a one-page business plan. Um, and this is the design thinking component, right? right. So what are you going to name your company? And you know, what's the value, what you're making, and how much you're going to charge for it? Uh, what does it cost you? That sort of thing. And, um, and then they run, we run this program. Kids sell lemonade for a day at Pro Ridge Shopping Mall. Mm-hmm. We package it now so that schools can run it on their own campuses themselves. And so the Pro Ridge event is becoming more of a school's runoff. Um, we're limited in space, so we, we're always sold out now. And it's really sad to turn kids away So, you know, it's like, if we can do this and we can affect more, that's our goal. Uh, So basically what the kids do is they sell lemonade for a day to support a charity of their choice. Um, I would call this more social venturing than entrepreneurship. Everything we teach in terms of entrepreneurship is really about social venture. So the net goals that the kids are supposed to be tracking are, we call them the three Ps, helping people in need, helping the planet be sustainable, um, or helping philanthropies and knowing what to do with your profit to be, uh, you know, a, a good citizen. And, and so the challenge we pose to children is that it, it's all well and good that you can open a business and you can make a profit and support your family and support your employees and all that stuff. But 
if you raise the bar on them to say, you're doing this to also help beyond just your business group, then they're going to rise to that occasion. Mm. Uh, so that's essential for all of our programs that we get to that philanthropic sharing component and teaching good values. Wow. And what is Project Lemon Tree? So Project Lemon Tree is a spin-off program of Lemonade Alley. Um, we're essentially found out last year that uh, actually my, my nephew, uh, Brandon Yamauchi, he's a uh, uh, intern for the nonprofit and he was doing some research online and he found that lemon trees of all cultivated plants are the top sequester of CO2. Wow. And I was like, are you really? kidding me? Yeah, show me the white paper. So there's a white paper. If you go on our website, projectlemontree.com, there's a citation there. You can look, read this report from Spain, Spanish University. And um, it's very interesting the reasons why it's the highest sequester, um, many reasons why. But in any event, it turns out to be this perfect tree to grow on school campuses. It doesn't have invasive roots. There's no fall hazards because it's more of a small bushy tree. You can build pergolas which hold up the tree. Those become out their classrooms. There's student voice involved. They learn how to do uh, uh, design thinking, uh, building. So there's construction component to that. They learn agricultural sciences. They learn culinary sciences. They learn entrepreneurship because you can make other things with lemons beyond lemonade. Um, lemons have cleaning um, solvents and um, uh, uh, antibacterial agents. That's why they're in so many cleaning products. It's not just by happenstance, they're there. Specialty soaps. Yeah, exactly. Soaps, right. um, you know, pledge that furniture polish is always lemon right. because it actually cleans furniture. Hmm. So the kids learn these things and then we make this whole curriculum series around it um, to help the teachers teach kids about soil science, companion gardens, what native plant species are relevant to lemons. Um, it, it got pretty involved. So Elemental Accelerator came in, gave us a little grant to create a curriculum series around it. Um, Kalanani uh, Grants gave us some money. We partnered with CTAR. They start growing trees for us up in UH Manoa. Right. And I go on, I go on media and I, and I said, you know what? We're going to buy a thousand lemon trees and give them to any school that's willing to dig a hole because this tree is so good. And um, boom, <laughs> it's like 60 schools signed up. So we're really active with many schools, all islands, and uh, it's just turned out to be a really fun program, but it's, it's helpful on so many levels, and it's, it's in a way, it's, um, it's proving out the PBL model because mm. it's so hands-on and it's so, multi, it's so multidisciplinary that the kids understand all the different parts. Um, and you know, from an from a, uh, approval standpoint, doing things like Understanding how facilities maintenance is going to respond to this type of program was really key. So we wrote a whole program series about how do you care for a tree and there's sign up pages where kids can sign up for this week I get a water and prune and you know we have a whole care plan that goes with it. The kids name the trees so they basically become pets. Um, we sold the, um, the schools on uh, the understanding that high acid fruits and it turns out that DOE historically has only allowed two fruit trees, lemons and limes. And the reason is they're high acid. Rodents don't like them. Homeless won't eat a lot of them. So it's not an attractive nuisance. Um, so it's, it's that type of research that you do to figure out what will really work on a school campus. Mm -hmm. As a curriculum writer now, I can tell you, man, it's hurtful to write curriculum. You've got to go so far down every rabbit hole because you're dealing with potentially harming people's legacies, kids. And you can't tell them something wrong. You can't provide something that's dangerous. You know, do they have thorns? Yes, some do, some don't. So we're, we're using the varieties of lemons that are thornless or small thorns. But 
there's a myriad of issues that you deal with in, right. in education. But the, the net truth is that to me, if a kid got pricked by a thorn, it's not that bad because we teach them to cut those things off because they're dangerous. So they, they, that's something for them to do that they can do. They cut them off with scissors. Right. Um, right. That's the kind of learning they need to do. I saw a very moving video on your site, a dedication ceremony mm -hmm. that happened with a, a particular structure. Um, it was it was quite emotional to yeah, watch God, everybody God, come yeah. together. Made me cry. <laughs> what, what what actually happened during the ceremony? How was how did that come together for you? Yeah, so we were building a lemon pergola in that video at Thomas Jefferson Elementary, and it's just amazing to see the community come together for that program because. Uh, the, it was actually our first installation of a pergola for, for this program. And the, uh, the principal at the school, Garrett Sakahi, had called me over to the school. One of his teachers had said, you've got to meet this guy. So I go and meet him. And he asked me to meet him in the middle of the school playground. So there's, there's this huge, like, 40-foot diameter concrete pad in the middle of five acres of grass. And I go, wow, why is there this huge, five acre, this huge piece of concrete in the middle of five acres of grass? And he goes... Well, a play structure burned down there three years ago, and I kept it. And the reason why the teacher called me to meet you is I went on the news and I said, we're going to keep the pad. DOA wants to take out the concrete, but I want to keep it as a symbol of what bad things happened here. But one day we're going to make lemonade out of lemons. Wow. And so the teacher hears that, and she goes, wow. And then she hears my program. She's, she pairs us up. Wow. Um, and, and so her name is Jessica Barbera, just a, a fantastic first grade teacher. Uh, so she brings me in, talk to her class, plan this whole thing out with the kids. And um, so I was out there with the principal and I said, wow, so there's a 10 by 10 foot concrete hole cut out of the middle. Why is that like that? And he goes, oh, I just had that cut because you were coming. And so he says, can I plant a lemon tree there? And I said, yeah, you know, that'd be cool, but one lemon tree in this huge expanse of five acres is going to look like a weed. So I had just come back from Italy where in the south of Italy, if you go to Amalfi Coast or yes. Cinque Terre, those yes. kind of places, there are lemons everywhere, right? They are. Everywhere. And everything's Every growing outside. on a trellis. Yes. So the lemon capital of the world. Beautiful, right? Yep. Um, so um, I said, well, why don't we build a pergola? And I showed him a picture of Amalfi. And he goes, that's exactly what we want to do. So a pergola is the structure. A pergola is a structure that holds up a lemon. And so the premise is that a lemon has very very heavy fruit and if you hold up the branches then they won't break off mm. and if you keep the branches going horizontally you're going to get far more fruit as much as 60 percent more fruit because wow. the leaves that are, are or branches that are going straight up they're producing leaves to eat the sun so they won't produce as many flowers it's either leaves or flowers it's a combination whenever a tree flushes so by going horizontal you'll get a disproportionate number of flowers that's why they grow in pergolas right so he goes, wow, great idea. Let's build a pergola. We do a 40-foot diameter pergola, four trees, grow lemons up on the top. It's a shade structure. The students design it. So student voice. It's an outdoor classroom. Every school needs shade. Um, that was before we had curriculum. So I just basically went in and worked with the kids myself. Um, so, yeah, it was just like a super fun thing. So Kalani High School Makers Club comes in. And they pre-cut all the wood. They're out there with high school kids shooting transit rods to figure out the elevations. And they're shooting videos. So this one Saturday in June, 80 people come out and three chefs. And, and it was super fun. Like we harvested tilapia out of their grow ponds. Um, Iolani, Waikiki Elementary, 
Um, and then Jefferson all have grow gardens. So everything that was eaten was grown on school properties. So we have this whole chef thing going on and building of the pergola, dedication at the end, first lady comes, you know. Wow. Yeah, it's just like amazing to see the community what a, just what a put it out. Great example of a, of a complex interweaving of community and school. Yeah. And, yeah. and the thing is that, and this goes back to the, the idea of ideas. If you have a big idea and you allow place for people to add their ideas onto that pyramid, then it becomes a much bigger pyramid. Right. Because I don't really aspire to be the guy directing that whole pyramid. I'll just be like, I'll do my part. I'll do one cornerstone and see what other people come in with. And if you work with a giving heart, it's really easy for them to feed in. And next thing you know, you get 80 people out there just crushing it and having the best time of their lives. Yeah, that's fantastic. Steve, um, there are other projects that you have listed on your site. Um, taken together, what's behind STEM cities, the Hawaii Sketch Comedy Festival, Buns Hawaii, <laughs> the Shaka Film, and other projects? Like, what yeah. what is the umbrella over it? Is it is it BizGenics Foundation? Yeah. And then taken all together, like, what do they all mean? What what yeah. pulls them all together? Well, the common thread for BizGenics Foundation is we celebrate creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship. So we started strictly from entrepreneurship, but we realized that in the education space, we really want to teach innovation more than entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurial mindset is something that I'm very keen on. So for example, if you have entrepreneurial mindset, you can go get a job and be really valuable. You can become a project leader or a manager. Um, being an entrepreneur is a very specific thing. I honestly think probably only half a percent or less of the population should be entrepreneurial because it really requires kind of a blend between ADD and finishing. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really hard, right? right. Um, uh, you have to have the passion for it, but also the skill sets for it. Uh, and a lot of that is just personality traits. Um, I'm a super hard driver and I'm ADD. So that's kind of the, the makeup for we want for entrepreneurial people, but not, you know, the, the creative aspects, the, the, the four C's. So you talk about creativity, collaboration, communication skills, critical thinking skills, those are all extremely important to any job you can have, whether you own the company or you're an employee. Um, so those are the things that we really celebrate and creativity as the highest level, which really is this expression that is positive. So how can you make the world a better place? Um, put your own spin on it, bring your own set of skills to it. Everybody has a different experience in this world. And it's the combination of those skills that is always unique. So mm -hmm. people have more voice and they're willing to play nicely. Yay, right? Right. So we have um, programs in here that are more entertainment based because that's a really safe space. It's a good way to get people laughing. You know, Hawaii Comedy Festival. It's really Kimmy Bamaleros. You know Kimmy very well, right? I mean, she's an actor supreme. How, how many local people are on two network TV shows at once? Right. We're very blessed to have her. Yeah. Um, she's been, and it's not just that she's a star or an acting talent, but you know, she shows up every single year. She's been her MC at Lemonade Alley every year. Mm -hmm. um, she's an educator. She was at Midpac doing their after school programs for like three years and doing Lemonade Alley over there just for Midpac. So, I mean, she's the, exactly the kind of person that I like to be associated with because not only does she have epic skills, but she shares them in a positive fashion. Right. Um, she, we're currently working with her with this, um, this new uh, uh, app called Actors High. So it's basically a way to help actors get cast. And she gets a lot of questions like who should be cast for this part? Right. And she doesn't want to disintermediate the, um, 
the casting directors, but she wants to help, right? So I love all the programs she does. So that's why she wow, her programs work with our stuff. Idea. Yeah, and wow. then we've got this Buns Hawaii thing, which is have you heard of Bill Forty? No. It's so it's the food packaging one. So locally, it just passed like I don't know a few days ago, where you can't have anything that is not biodegradable for food packages right, right, and, right. and utensils. Right. So this Buns Hawaii thing, we're working with Lanakula Pacific. We basically made a food box container mm. and it's called Buns Hawaii because it's to hold sliders. We're doing mm. a slider program where we're promoting any restaurant that will make sliders and we're asking them to do their own versions of sliders. We provide the boxes, they buy the boxes from us. 10 cents of every box goes to our programs, Meals on Wheels and, and Lemonade Alley. And then Lanakula Pacific, does um, uh, logo merchandise printing. So they print t-shirts and hats and things like that. So the, the, the beauty behind Buns Hawaii is we're making t-shirts that um, look like the, you know, the New York t-shirt that's I heart yeah. um, New York. I yeah. love New York. Yeah. So ours are I love buns and then Hawaii is really small underneath it. So I love buns, Hawaii. And they're printing all those so all the restaurants can buy those and sell them. Because a lot of the restaurants, they don't have uh, swag merchandise. And right. this is their chance to make 100% markup um, on a product that they don't even have to produce. They just have to order what they need. Uh, but it's a community collaborative among restaurants. Right. Uh, so it helps everybody concerned. Um, and then um, with respect to, uh, what else is there? Busy Bee, we have project-based learning system. That's, uh, it's very techy. It's, uh, we just finished a um, PD training course design. So we just got approved last week. So we'll be teaching teachers how to do project-based learning with a digital format. And it's a format that allows teachers to create uh, project-based learning curriculum. Um, they can also uh, run contests out of their project-based curriculum pieces. Uh, mentors, because it's online, and it's basically made as a design thinking um, uh, journaling device. So kids come in as teams, and they're able to journal five themes of, of, of their projects, which are the five themes of innovation. Um, as they journal, there's comment sidebars, very much like Google Documents, where uh, mentors can, can come in and comment. So it's a way for us to get mentors on a virtual basis. Wow. And that's super key because we want to affect the kids that are, you know, remote, right? They're, they're on Lanai right. and they want to work with somebody in town that's an app developer. Mm -hmm. they're, not, they're never going to get them to go to Lanai. It costs too much. Or if we want to bring in mentors from the mainland, ideal. Right. Because once you're online, you're good to go. Um, and we're very fortunate because we had a big grant a couple years ago, a million dollars from a, a foundation called the Hope Foundation in, in Southern California to build this to build this program. And I own a um, technology company, so we build um, uh, software applications. So we're able to actually use a lot of the code we make for our commercial applications and then license it to our nonprofit. But we, we have very deep capacity. And we also are able to um, then build very cheaply because we have a lot of the code done already. Right? So we have basically Lego blocks of code that we can fit together. This is called the microservices platform. Um, and then at the same time, we're able to do hackathons now with kids. So we just did one at STEMWorks where um, kids came in and did a hack for an app. But what follows out of that is a summer program where the winners do um, um, a design for the real app to be built. We're not going to ask them to code the app because frankly, there's too much backend stuff that a kid would not want to do. Security devices and crons and, you know, it's like it's super deep. If, you, if anything that's commercializable, there's a reason why when you build an app commercially, you go and get a VC company to put in five or 10 million bucks and you hire 300 people to start with. Every one of those people is necessary. 
It's not just because you want to build a huge base of people. So what we do with the kids is <clears throat> we have them do design um, uh, specifications and wireframes. And then we have our Bangladesh office build the application, but the kids manage them. Mm -hmm. They art direct them. They uh, do the QA, the quality assurance. And so they basically become the managers and designers, which is really what Google wants. They don't want necessarily a bunch of coders. And, and the frank truth is you're going to see coding fall off a cliff in the next few years because of automated coding. Mm -hmm. AI is going to be all over that. It already is starting. So, um, you know, it's like coding is essential to learn because you have to know how computing works. But you don't necessarily want to be the person writing every line. Right. Uh, but all that said, I think, you know, these are the type of programs that I'm really passionate about because they're, they're reframing how education is done, really with PBL, design thinking, into digital formats. Um, we're extremely um, technical with what we're doing, but we try to make it human. In, in a lot of ways, we're not human enough. And just to make things really extra human, I have certain projects that are really, like we're doing a, a documentary on the Shaka. And that's turning out to be super fun. Which is the classic sort of the, hand gesture yeah. that you see people in Hawaii use when everything is okay or everything is good. Do you know the story behind the shocket? Tell it's us the story. Stunning. So, Laie, North Shore. Yeah. There's a man up there, probably estimated around 1910, is up at the Kahuku Sugar Mill, and he gets involved in an accident. So after the accident, he is reassigned to be the security guard on the train that runs from Sunset Beach to Kaneohe, mm -hmm. and his sole job is to keep the kids from jumping on this train. So whenever the see the, the kids see that. Hamana, his name is. Uh, Hamana's not looking. They flash a shaka. Like, it's okay, jump him. And the reason why they do that is because he lost three fingers in the accident. Wow. If you go to Polynesian Cultural Center, in the entryway uh, from their uh, food, food court area into the park, there's a seven-foot-tall bronze statue of Hamana Kalili there with a plaque that tells the story. It, it's, just, it's stunning, but it turns out that Hamana, incidentally, his name is 100% Hawaiian descent, his name, Ha, Breath of Life, plus Mana, right? Your personal power. Like, you couldn't have picked a better name for a kapuna. But this guy was the fisherman of Laie. He was in this very celebrated position to be in because you had to take care of the fishery, but you also would dole out the fish to everybody. So you're very powerful and you had to, you know, keep people in check. So in the early days, the kids used to call the shaka Hamana DA. And the DA stood for district attorney. Mm. So... I started looking into the story because I own a spirits brand that um, is called Shaka Spirits. And so I start getting interested in the story. So this one friend of mine, he goes, if you want to know the real history to Shaka, you got to go to Laie. And so I go, oh yeah, that'd be cool. He goes, I know somebody who could talk to them. So I go up and talk to them and they're all these elders and they're old. They're like 80, 90 years old. And they said, you know what, Steve, if you want to tell this story, you come back with a movie camera. And we'll tell you the story. We've never told the story before. Wow. Because we never want somebody to take the story and use it for wrong. But we're getting old. So at this age, they want the oral history to go on. Right. And, uh, and they knew my works. They knew nonprofits and education and things like that. So I said, yeah, you know what? That'd be super cool. So I jet back up there with a, with a film crew and did six interviews. And these people are stunning characters. They're so human and so giving and so full of life. Now they're all my aunties and uncles, right? They're all in my family. 
Um, unfortunately, a couple of them have passed away since then. It's only been a few months. Wow. Um, so to me, it's, it's, it's essential to capture this story yes. because there's, there's a spirit of aloha in the shaka. But I came to find out that the word shaka is a Japanese word. And it comes from Shakyamuni, which is a Buddha, the first Buddha that went to Japan. And the, this Buddha has the right hand is held up like in a cup. And that, that, that is called a mudra. And that means fear not in, in Buddhism. And then the other hand is the left hand is held with the two middle fingers in, almost like they're, they're cut off. Um, and that means uh, 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 it's okay, go for it. So the combination between the two is kind of like what the, you know, Eddie Aikau, the surfer, would say, uh, you know, fear not, it's okay, go for it. Right. It's a little bit dangerous, but, but follow your dreams. Right. Live life large, but do it with a grin. Don't do it to hurt anybody else. Even better if you can help. Right. Um, I think Bethany Hamilton is a good example of that. Yeah, right, right, right. She chased her dreams. She got her arm bit off. She ended up helping other people. Her story got richer, even though she couldn't be a pro surfer at that same level. But wow, what a, what a great, you know, in the face of disaster, she made something out of nothing. Right. Less right. than nothing. Right. So that's like very key to me that the humanism and what people can do that everybody should be empowered to find themselves and, and contribute what their best self is. So that's a, that's a good segue, Steve, to our, our last moment here um, during this episode. Um, you've had a lot of contacts with young kids, young minds, young hearts. Um, and this podcast is inspired by Ted Dittersmith's book, What mm -hmm. School Could Be. Yeah. That's why it's called What School Could Be in Hawaii. So to you, and I know this seems like a huge question, but what could school be? Well, to me, it's about pure creativity and invention. Uh, I, I think the trend is clear that this is exactly on Ted's point that, you know, the idea of, of, of drip feeding STEM based knowledge is in a lot of ways unnecessary. I think there's a, there's a, um, there's a spectrum of it though. So when the kids are in grade school, they have to learn basics of, of, of learning, of communication. So they need to learn how to, how to speak, how to read, how to write. Um, basic math. And that pretty much has to be spoon fed. That's not going to be project based. But as you get into middle school, then you can start having curiosity, you know, place based learning, just to be active because that creates engagement. Mm -hmm. And within any project based learning model, I'm always looking for how do you gain curiosity and engagement, but also deliver the topical information. And, and obviously, as kids get to high school, then they could really be unfettered and capstone and, you know, hackathons where you pose a challenge and they'll go do their own research because now they already know how to read and write and do enough math. If they don't know how to do math, if they don't know how to code, they can go figure that out. Like, you know, when I'm building websites, sometimes I can't remember what that HTML tag is. So I'll just Google it. And that's what I don't need to know every single tag before I start coding. I need to know enough to be curious and to go find out ask how to ask the right question. Um, so ultimately, if you look at that whole model of PBL and, and PBL is kind of a very wide definition, I would really rather see it be more compartmentalized into several different things. So if it starts with play space, that's really very early. It's that's, you know, elementary school. And then it goes to um, generic pro um, uh, projects, which is just active hands on things. 
curiosity play, curiosity challenges. And then it goes to problem-based learning, which is identifying a problem and solution. And then after that, it goes to innovation-based learning, which is problem, solution, and value. You know, that's, and then it, you know, the social values of uh, three Ps, as, as I framed them earlier in, in the talk. So maybe you go to entrepreneurship or not. That's ended up being sort of that end-all moniker. But if you look at what STEM was originally created for, it was to connect policy to education to workforce. And education is actually a reflection of the workforce. You know, we only have education because uh, of, of the need for managers and designers in, in the 40s and 50s. So that whole thing with looking back and you actually asked about STEM cities, that's exactly what that initiative is about, is to create a, a more collaborative model where policymakers, employers, and educators are all connected to serve that entire sort of three-legged stool. Um, it's not being done very well right now. It, it really, STEM as it's, divine, as it's designed is supposed to be connecting all three legs. And the one that goes to workforce is really weak. The one that's from policy is really weak. So basically people are repackaging STEM curriculum and calling it PBL, but it's not really doing what PBL should be because frankly, if you talk to the employers, they really want soft skills. So when I look at PBL, I'm look, um, I came up with this, uh, this uh, acronym piece the other day, it's STEM SS. So the, the, S, the second SS is written as a superscript. In math, that's called an exponent. Mm. So if you say that SS stands for soft skills, STEM expanded exponentially by soft skills is really powerful. So you have foundational knowledge that grows bigger and bigger because you know how to think because you know how to be creative, because you don't design thinking, that's what I'm looking for in PBL. Right. Um, so this idea of STEM SS is really where I want to get to because I know for a fact that's what the employers want. Remember, I come from the business world originally. So I really like the idea of a demand side model where employers say, this is what we need in people. And they're all saying the same thing. We need soft skills. We need four Cs. We need, we need social and emotional. Um, you know, we need good people. And if they acquire enough knowledge to be helpful and the right attitude, then it becomes pretty easy. And kids are inherently prepared to give that kind of an attitude. We actually wreck them <laughs> in the middle, right? Right. I, I, frankly, I think that universities are largely getting disintermediated at some point because the high schools are, are going to short circuit them. Every academy based, every micro badging system, that micro badging is about proving that you have the skills to go get the job. So will the universities fall out? Maybe so, because they price themselves out of the model. They, they certainly have a place if they want to do it right, but I don't think they're doing a lot of it right now. And this whole issue with like, um, I just saw this movie called uh, No Safe Spaces. Uh, I mean, it's on this very topic and I bought a lot of what they were saying because I think we coddle the kids too much that you know they, they, they're not allowed to fail. They're not allowed to think for themselves enough. and. Um, it still happens in, in, in junior high school and high school. So maybe that happens. Right. Wow. Steve, you are a generator of ideas. You started with that at the beginning of this episode, you talked about yeah. yourself as a person that has ideas constantly. And, um, over the course of this talk, uh, I think that's loud and clear to everybody. So thank you very much for being part of this podcast and part yeah, of this series. Me, You're We're, doing a great job with this, by the way. Thank you. I'm proud of you. You're, you're crushing it. Thank you. I appreciate you, Steve. Thank you.